Well, it's a, uh, well, I guess it's a privilege and an honour in some ways, isn't it, Jimmy? We don't have a lot of tournament directors on the Good Good Golf Podcast, and when you do, who would you rather have? Mike Clayton, tournament director of the Sandbelt Invitational. Clates, thanks for coming along, mate. No problem, Rob. Always good to talk about golf. I thought you were going to say always good to talk with us, but you're right. Yeah. It's always good to talk about golf. Uh, what are we, two weeks out from the Sandbelt Invitational? How are things going, Clay? So I imagine it's taking up a fair bit of your time, so we should thank you particularly for taking some today. Uh, yeah, we had a meeting this morning. It's going well. Lucas Herbert just pulled out because his mum's sick and he's had a long year. and So every shot makes someone happy. So <laughs> Matias Sanchez got in, which was good. Um, he's... We've, Jeff Ogilvie, the foundation runs this thing called The Game, which we had 27 of this year. So the clubs are great. They let us play four or five groups, every most mostly on Mondays. Just, you know, the best young players around in town. We get together and play. Jeff plays most of them when he's here. and So it's good. Tom Powerhorn plays. He won at Warrigal on the weekend. Warrigal on the weekend, yeah. Lucas, Michelle and Janith Wong. Keith doesn't play so much because he goes to school, but Lucas played. He won the Port Phillip on the weekend, yeah. so he's playing the Vic Amateur staying today at Royal Melbourne. What did Janith want? She won something at the weekend. She won the Port Phillip as well. She, she, uh, won, she, the she won the women's part of the Port Phillip. Yep. And she goes, so, goes to school. <laughs> she goes to school. It's st- very unfortunate. Staggering, isn't it? We're assuming she'll win the Vic Amateur because she's probably the best player there. I'm not sure who else is playing in tennis, but she lost the final last year, but She's a good player. She's a really good player. Uh, yeah. Really, really, really good player, actually. Indeed. Um, and Lucas is the last – is he the last proper amateur in Australia? So far. Is he going to turn, like, do you think? No, I, no, I don't think he is. I mean, we've, he's he – like he's going to be working in the courses we're building in Vietnam next year, so he's up there on a dozer in the the clay on the edge of the ocean giving up a building problem. a golf course. So, uh, in fairness, there's a lot – Better money doing that than there is playing pro golf, probably for him. <laughs> Maybe he can play the Vietnamese tour or something in his off days. What about giving up a professional golf career to drive bulldozers, Jimmy? And have Clates yell at you. <laughs> Clates yell at you that you've done it wrong, exactly, or Mike DeVries. I told you well, well he's, yeah, in fairness, he's learning from Mike DeVries, who was, mm. which is like learning how to play golf from Tiger Woods, really. So I don't. There aren't too many guys better on a dozer than Mike DeVries. Yeah, indeed. Clates, I was thinking while you're talking about this game, this has the, been the genesis of the Sandbelt Invitational, and really in many ways the TPS tournaments that we've seen, this same kind of idea. Good players, whether they're juniors, adults, women, men, elite amateurs, all getting together and just playing golf. You and Jeff sort of cooked this up. I feel like it's one of those things that will most people will just brush over and say, oh, yeah, they started this thing. Really important, I'd imagine, for a lot of these young players. They don't get that many opportunities in Australia, do they? Particularly during COVID, we know that. To play against other good players, how important is that? You made a living out of playing golf for the best part of 30 years. How important is it to be playing against good players all the time to see where you're at? Well, I think it's no, I think it is important. It's, a, it's the way you get better is playing with hmm. players that are better than you are. We started it in COVID at St Andrews Beach. We had a we played for two days, 36 holes, and that was the genesis of it, really. But you know, amateur golf is just a bunch of kids playing. It's basically assistant pro golf now, it seems to me. There are no amateurs who play amateur golf for a career in golf as not a financial career, but a career in golf. The way Tony Gresham played or Phil Ward or Colin Kay or Peter Sweeney or Kevin Hartley, you know, men who had jobs and families but who treated amateur golf seriously. We need a new category, don't we, Clates? I'm an amateur. Jimmy's an amateur. Lucas Michelle's not an amateur, is he? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? There needs to be a new category, doesn't there? Well, he... Kyle is an amateur because he worked at Seven Mile Beach all year and didn't play any golf. He, he hardly played at all. He had a job. So, um, but that amateur is not coming back. That amateur almost doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. So, you know, part of the idea of pros playing pennant in Melbourne and part of the idea of the game and the sandbelt was to get rid of this silly distinction between amateur and pro and just have the best players. Hmm who want to play, playing with and against each other. And in the Sandbelt tournaments, essentially 36 pros, roughly, and 36 amateurs. And Lucas is in that, but he's way older than Amelia Harris, who's 15 and playing, which is what it's really about. It's about Amelia Harris getting to play with Cameron Davis in a tournament yeah. and just asking him questions. And, you know, she played with Peter Fowler last year. That was great. And so it's about... Matt Goggins playing, Richard Green, who just 
splits the tour school in America. Staggering. So it's it's about the older guys and more experienced players playing with the kids and passing on that knowledge, which was what going all the way back, which was which again was the genesis of the tournament, was what Norman von Neider did for Peter Thompson and what Peter Thompson did for Graham Marsh and what Graham Marsh did for all of us. And it was just passing down that knowledge and the experience and the information and having someone to talk to about golf and someone to watch. And so it's, you know, if I was a 15-year-old kid, you know, it'd be great to play golf with Jeff Ogilvy. He's a guy that won the US Open. You can, and Jeff will sit down with him in the clubhouse for as long as they want and talk about golf and his experience and, you know, how he's learned to play and how he's trying to relearn to play. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a never ending battle to, Keep um to keep trying to play well. Was this who, who was I talking to? No, there was a podcast. Who was it? Was it Brandle? No, it wasn't Brandle. It was someone who was fifty eight years old, still getting lessons. Who was it? I don't think it was Brandle, but it was yeah, just today or yesterday. Someone you know, a really good player mm-hmm. talking about still getting lessons. Well, you know, I still need to you know figure out what I'm doing. I'll tell you, what it was it was Davis Love. It was a Davis <laughs> wow. Love podcast with wow. Um, Alan Shipnack, was it? I'm not sure. You're the one to listen to it. You're the one to listen to it. It was the Davis Love podcast with Bruce Devlin. Oh, the good okay. Of game. That for the good of the game, yeah. Was and he was, he was talking it. about, you know, I'm still getting lessons. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it's a game of never-ending adaption and learning and how do I figure out how to play with this body I've got right now because it's not the one I had when I was 20. Yeah. It's a journey, not a destination, Clates, as they say. Jimmy, you yeah. talk to and know a lot of the younger players – there's been a lot of science injected into the game in the last 20 or 30 years. What Clates is talking about there has got nothing to do with any of that. What's the role of what Clates is talking about for younger players? It can be easy to think the answer's on track man or club fitting or coaching or this position in a swing. Golf's never quite that simple, is it? No, absolutely not. I think a lot of those younger players don't know how important that role would be and how much they'd gain an advantage from that sort of experience. Harrison Crowe's a magnificent example so before COVID, he was a good player, but he was not on this upward trajectory that he's now going to play majors and everything next year. During COVID, he lived around the corner from Bardwell Valley where he grew up and he went and just played golf every day, played as many holes as he could every day and just learnt to play golf. Just not worrying about golf swing, not worrying about anything of like that, hit it in a bad spot, learn how to get it out of it, learn how to score. He came out of that break and suddenly wins New South Wales Amateur, Master of the Amateurs, New South Wales Open, Asia Pacific Amateur. And shows that he can play serious golf, but all he did was focus on playing golf, which so few seem to do now. That you know, I played a I played a kids pro am, US kids pro am, a couple of years ago, and the kids I played with, there was a couple of kids. Well, you weren't one of the kids, were you? I was this one was, of the this kids. This was for no, a story. That was no, no. That was I was one of the kids. I was one of the alleged pro parts. Yeah, but right. This. There was one kid who was a good player from up in Queensland and I've still sort of tracked his progress and he works exceptionally hard with a coach and they work on track man and they work on every little bit of that. His improvement is really impressive. The other kid was this Kiwi kid who'd never had a lesson and I had to grind as hard as I've ever had to grind to not get beaten by an eight-year-old because he just knew how to play the game. He just learnt how to play and I think a lot of that gets lost in players. You get drilled into numbers and everything like that and that. That learning that, like, the sand belt offers is amazing. Like, you know, Amelia Harris playing with Peter Fowler. Oh, that was extraordinary. And and Chook probably saying something like, oh, well, you know, I've hit a bad shot and I'm going to go fix it now. I'm going to go to the range. I'm going to go work on it rather than maybe a, a state coach saying, oh, no, you've hit enough balls today. Go home and we'll work on it next week. Like, that's – that's well, Knowing Chook, go to the gym and do those flat jumps on top of the boxes. Did yeah. you see him doing that a couple of <laughs> 61 years old or something? He's jumping up onto a – Onto a desk. All of that's golf-related stuff, and I imagine there's a lot in that. But professional golf, playing professional golf, becomes fairly quickly not so much about the on-course golf, doesn't it? There are so many other elements to it which you have to manage where the course actually ends up becoming the sanctuary. Is there much of that sort of discussion, learning about travel and money and taking care of yourself and being your own business and all of those things that nobody tells you about or nobody thinks about when they're you know on the practice screen holding this putt to win the Masters? Yeah, there's not really. A, I mean, it's kind of part of the point of the tournament is for the kids to ask those questions, and they probably don't ask them enough. But you're right. I remember when Jeff was Ogilvy first went to Europe, the VIS just said, "You guys organise it. There's the money. 
you know, and they had a pretty limited budget, but they had to organize their own travel, their own airfares, their own hotels, their own rental cars or not, and trains or buses or ha- however else they got around. But you, you need to learn how to travel and play it. Pl- playing golf is some ways, it's not the easy part, but you've got to learn how to live the life. And it's, it's not a life that, you know, there are lots of kids who, like Zach Murray, who's a horrendous part. I mean, he, I know he's struggled with being away and being alone and traveling, especially in COVID when they were locked in their rooms when they weren't playing, they're in their hotels. And so it's, you know, I mean, I loved the lot. I didn't care. I didn't care where I stayed and how I got around. You just figured it out. And we, we traveled in a pack and we did it. But, you know, if you're not comfortable with that, it's, it's not, it isn't a great life. If you, you know, if you don't like it, it's a miserable life. Yeah. Not everybody's cut out for living out of a suitcase. It sounds fantastic because we all go on holidays once a year and live out of a suitcase for a week and it's really good. It's not great for three, four, five, six, seven, eight, fifteen weeks in a row. It gets uh, gets pretty deep. You can't have stuff like just have a dog. Well, guys like Zach Murray or you know Todd Sinnott and mm-hmm. Brett Coletta, guys who were seriously good players and are now kicking on a little bit more but struggled with it for a little while. They would have their mates their age who they grew up with going to Europe and saying we're going on a trip and whatever. And these guys would have been to those same places and never seen anything but a golf course and a hotel room. Did you go here? No. Did you go there? No. What did you do? We went to the golf course. Yeah. Got a passport with more stamps in it than anything else and you've seen nothing. It's it's, not dissimilar to what we do when we travel around and you spend all that time and it sounds glamorous, but it's not necessarily. And uh, I'd always – the conversations with younger players about how that works – that Scott Henn told me a story once that always sticks in my mind of a young guy just turned pro and he said, oh, where are you staying this week? Oh, and the young bloke says, oh, don't know, some ho- hotel. How much is that costing? Don't know. No idea. Oh, where? what about your flights and stuff? Oh, don't know. How do you not know? That's your money. That's your business that's going, oh, well, it's always just been taken care of. You just go and stay where the tournament hotel is and you do. And Hendy's telling him, I've, every single dollar I spend, I'm, I'm matching it against what I make this week so that I know where I stand. And that's, you know, that's something that's not taught to guys and you'd only learn from talking to an older guy like Clates or Jeff or whatever and saying, how did you manage it? And that changed, Clates? Was there anybody like that? Did you ever meet anybody like that 30 years ago on the European tour who didn't know where the money came from or anything? It would have been pretty rare, I would have thought. Now it's not uncommon, is it? Yeah, no, everyone knew. Yeah, you know, it was you – know, I remember when, um, you know, when 100 pounds was the caddy wage in Europe and – Offering someone 120 pounds was that was paying over the odds, you know. So it, I mean, that's how um, it was. Yeah, I mean, R- Randy Fox was a, an American from New York who ran all the travel for the basic well, well not for the overseas base for for everyone who travelled. There were two travel companies, and you you went with one or the other, and most of us went with Randy. And it was, you know, it was down to the well, it wasn't like you were grinding on five pounds, but we all shared rooms because that was 100 pounds less for the week. Or whatever it was, 150 pounds less for the week, which was would be unthinkable now. But they play in terms of what they play for now in Europe and America compared with what we play for. It's crazy You're playing for so much more money, mm. especially in that. And and the PGA Tour is different because you it's like you're playing at home. So if there was a tournament tour in Australia, a proper 40 week tour in Australia, it would be easy to it would, you would just travel on your own and fly back and forth out of Melbourne and book your own hotels and stay with friends and it would be much different than what it was in Europe, which was packing up in March and going to London and staying away for 30 weeks and coming home in October. That was a completely different experience of playing a golf tour than what playing the PGA Tour in America is like now. Or the Live Tour, if you happen to be. <laughs> if you happen to be. So uh, fortunately on there. For the younger listeners, Clates, tell them how you used to get the football results while you were playing the European Tour in the 80s and 90s. The football results, the, the AFL football results were in the Tuesday morning's Telegraph, <laughs> Daily Telegraph in London. So that was where you saw the football scores. Yeah, it was Australian rules scores and it was a tiny section. Would have been But, but they always had the scores in there. Would have been like you could eight, point, eight point yeah. type. You yeah, had to really yeah. <laughs> strain to read it. It's, uh, yeah. it's staggering. I mean, there were, t- there were times when if you're in London, you'd go to the Australian Embassy to read the papers. <laughs> <laughs> like it was just bizarre stuff, really. When you think about it now, it's all on your screen. It's just you know, you, it, it's just, it was a much different life. It, it, um, look, 
modern life brings its own separate sets of challenges. It's not like I heard something the other day, which was really great. It's like, you know, it's always now is always the worst time. The past was always better or the future is always going to be better. The only really shitty time is when we're living in right now, which is unfortunately where we all are. And there is, of course, some of that close. But is there something to be said for those lessons that you learn away from the course? Can Does any of that transfer to on course for players or does none of it really matter? And a kid who grows up within the ecosystem who's obviously got talent and never knows any of that sort of stuff. I think of somebody like Matt Wolf. Mm. who from junior days to college, to, he would be, if not him, he's the kind of player who wouldn't know what hotel he was staying at or what it was costing. Is there any effect on any of that, do you think, on on course, or are they just sort of more life lessons to do with away from golf? Well, they're more life lessons. I think that you know, the problem with any sport where young men often not particularly broadly read or educated make a lot of money, it's, it's a recipe for a disaster really. You know, you get arrogance and um, entitlement and all those things that, you know, golfers and tennis players and other highly played young sports are accused of. And they lose touch with the reality of the world. So it was, you know, you, you need people who keep you grounded and keep you sensible and hopefully. But it's not something that's encouraged by the system. Because managers certainly aren't keeping them grounded because they're just – you know, it's their job to throw million-dollar contracts in their face, which, of course, is the upper, super, super upper, upper end of pro golf. You know, for every one of those deals, there's a 200 guys out there who are grinding to pay their bill next week. And, uh, yes. Should the should the Mike Clayton School of Life be part of the Sam Bell Invitational, where we get them all together and they sit in a room and you tell them if you, the, the if way you shoot the world? You do detention and you have to sit with Clayton for an hour and learn about how you got the football schools, all those. Yeah, you know, the, the smart ones all figure it out. In the end, and it's you know, I mean, part of the problem now is that because you can make a living, and because the you know the riches are there for all to see, it's you know forty or fifty years ago. Talking about the good old days, it was a big decision just to turn pro. Yeah. Now it's kids decide at fourteen, I'm going to be a golf pro, no matter what stage they're at at twenty. When they're ready to turn pro or not ready to turn pro, they turn pro. And it's never been more difficult to get a card and get get a foothold on the tour than it is now. I mean, Cade for Elvis the last three weeks, and he played well at the PGA, finished twelfth, and made thirty thousand dollars, and was fortieth after three days of the Australian the Australian Open, and didn't play the last day. And last week he was tied for twenty second, six man playoff for three spots, and he missed, so he got no money. So you know, it's and he's a you know, I think he's got a chance to be a properly great player. I mean, he hits the ball amazingly well, better than anyone else I, I see out there. I know I'm biased, but, but it's just tough to get a foothold, really. Well, and and he you- went, to the, went to the European Tour School. I came from the first stage. He shot 1,300 and finished second. He went to the second stage. Um, someone else came for him. He shot 1,300 and he missed. So he shot 26 under par. Didn't even get to the finals. And Takumi Kanaya who was at the first stage we were at, he won that 17 under, then shot 22 under, then shot 14 under, didn't get a card. And someone said, play better. So I will, it was 53 <laughs> under par for um, six, 14 rounds. I mean, it's pretty good. I don't care how easy the courses are or whatever. It's, you know, the grinding pressure of a tour school for 14 mm-hmm. rounds and you're 53 under par. You don't even get a job. Yeah, the stakes are higher than a check this week, aren't they? Q school is a whole other beast that's really brutal. And I, I think people turn pro as well. You can get your amateur status back. So the people who genuinely love golf can still go back and play amateur golf where they it was a lot harder once upon a time to do that. I mean, Matt Giles, who I grew up with at the Australian, he just lost the club championship final last week. So he's back playing club champs after being on the Nationwide or Corn Ferry or whatever tour. So if he still wants to play golf, he goes back and he's just a – rank-and-file member of the Australian. There's a scalp for somebody in the Australian, isn't it, being Matt Giles in the club? Because I'm I sure he can still play. It was two. Bro- there's two brothers who are sons of guy Gary Glenday who works for Ping in Australia, and I think it was Harrison, the younger one, who's now the club champion at the Lakes and the Australian at the same time, which I think must be the first time that's ever happened because not many are members of both, but right. beat, beat Matty Giles in the 36-hole final. That's us. I think two years in a row, Giles has lost the final, which is, and he'll no doubt really appreciate you bringing. Yeah, it up absolutely. Well, I'm sure. <laughs> Podcast to make sure. 
everybody. Mind you, the year, the year Jeff Ogilvy won the US Open, he didn't win the club championship at Whisper Rock. He lost yeah. the final. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there you go. I remember him talking about Whisper Rock to me once and saying that, you know, you'd be sort of heading to the first tee and somebody you'd never seen before would come up and want to play a match. And he said, even though you'd never say you're always wary because there was no such thing as a bad golfer at Whisper Rock, the blokes you'd never heard of shoot six under no problem and, and uh, take all your money if you weren't careful. Uh, indeed, speaking of Jeff uh, and the sand, we haven't spoken enough about the sand belt invitation. So tell us, those who don't know, what are the four courses this year and quickly run us through the format, Clates. Uh, Kingston Heath the first day, the 19th of December, followed by Royal Melbourne West Course, Yarra Yarra and the North Course at Peninsula. So the format is... It's, it's it's pretty much 36 pros and 36 amateurs, mm-hmm. men and women. Yep, men, men pros, female pros, men amateurs, female amateurs. So it's it's a mix. We play in threes and we kind of mix it up. So obviously, we want the you know the really good young kids to play with the with the pros, and Jeff gets to play with four of the best of them, and Cam Davis will get you know he'll, he'll get some nice draws with the best young kids we've got. And, but they all, you know, Blake Collier and Todd Sinner, who played well in the US Open this year, and, and there were lots of pretty good players playing. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how many, you know, emails I got from guys who aren't playing saying, can I get a start? You know, we're kind of full. And that's the worst part of being the tournament director's job is saying to someone, sorry, we're full this year. Yeah, we'd love you to, we'd love for you to be able to play, but you can't. Because, but that is, of course, uh, a good problem to have. And it means you've been successful the first year, doesn't it? If people want to play the second, there was a lot of skepticism about Sandbelt Invitational last year, I think, in fairness, wasn't there? Whether it'd survive. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, I think the format's good because I think the concept's good. You know, Jeff wants to, this kind of passing down of knowledge and having young kids and young amateurs play with the best pros in the country and the best pros in town and keep that, you know, that Von Neider, Thompson, Marsh kind of process going of the up-and-coming generation learning from the ones who are going through it and have been through it. Yeah, sort of and it's it's a celebration of what we saw at the Australian Open, how important playing great golf courses is to pro golf. Yeah. And you know, pro golf, despite what people think, very rarely goes to great golf courses. And it's a very overused word to the point where I would argue that Victoria and Kingsneath are not great courses. I think Royal Melbourne's the only great course in Australia, but by great I mean Ben Hogan, Bobby yeah. Jones, Jack Nicholas. I don't mean Greg Norman, Brooks Kepka, Dustin Johnson, who most people would describe as great players, but great needs to be properly great. And by great I mean one of the best five or ten courses in the world. Yeah. Because otherwise, how do you differentiate between Great and great, and le- you, you don't have levels of great. You're either great or you're not. That's right. And Victoria and Kingsneath are near great. I was going to say they're close to great, aren't they? They can touch yeah. it from there. And, they're, and, gr- they're great and, adjacent. And they're great tournament courses. Yes. And they're great Australian courses, and they're so. And it's it's been fun for me to be a, a part, especially Victoria, part of their rejuvenation. Graham Grant started. Uh, restoring Kingston Heath 40 years ago, 1982. When he got the job there, he started pulling trees out and re- looking at the old photos and restoring bunkers. And when we got the job at Victoria in 1995, we just went down the same path. We pulled trees out and we restored bunkers and we got, got the course in better condition. And, you know, the results, uh, it takes a long time to do that stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, and last weekend was a validation of, you know, almost 30 years' work at Victoria. And the course is, you know, it's still a top 10 course in Australia when it's much more difficult to be in the top 10 in Australia now than it was 30 years ago. And if we'd left that course alone, if that course was in the condition it was in, and the state, not the condition, the state it was in in 1995, it'd be, it wouldn't be in the top 20. No, they were both yeah. magnificent last week and, in fact, saved the golf tournament in many ways. We spoke last yeah. week at length about the controversies yeah. and the issues around the Australian Opens, saved by those two golf courses and what they the show they allowed the players to put on. Because as a spectacle and as a spectator, you can take the likes of Adam Scott and, and Minji Lee and Hannah Green and put them on a golf course. They'll put on a good show, but it'll never be quite the show that it is when you put them on a great golf course. And that's what we got, I thought, yeah, last which week. Is, which is what you get with the Sandbelt Invitational, that's right? That's exactly right. And like to go back to it a little bit of, I get asked a lot about it because everyone knows my relationship with Clates and Jeff and everything like that. And there's so much interest in it that 
players are keen to know and keen to work out how they can get in there. But to give like an idea of last year and its effect, Jed Morgan showed up there playing pretty bad towards the end of the year. He goes, has a low round of the day on the last day at Peninsula Kingswood and said to me, oh, I've got a bit of confidence now. His next start is the Aussie PGA that he wins by 11. Mm. Grace Kim's playing one of her first events as a pro. She wins the women's part. Janice Wong wins the women's amateur and Jai Pickin wins the men's amateur. Like, that's a pretty good leaderboard yeah. with Brady Watt winning the whole thing. Yeah. And they all go on to, you know, really good years of doing things. So, the effect of having these people around, and I remember Jai Pickin talking about playing with Zach Murray and Lucas Herbert and how much that helped him thinking about, I want to be a professional golfer and I've seen their shots and my shots measure up and now I know I can go and do it, but I just got to keep working at it. That's a huge element and... And I think people, maybe this year, there's a little bit of confusion after the Cathedral Invitational that followed the Australian Open. Just because it says Invitational, it is a whole nother oh, beast. beast. That is a whole different thing that we're looking at that's not even close to the realms and ideas of what this tournament is. Clates, it seems to me like there's almost these two opposites in effect at the moment. We've got Live Golf, and we know there's been a bunch of stuff. And congratulations, by the way, for stealing the entire show from a lengthy age piece on Greg Norman oh, yeah. with, with just a two-line quote, which kind of was the whole thing right in the middle of the story. It was fantastic. But the Sandbelt Invitational and Live Golf seem to me to be the complete opposite sides of the same coin. So would you first agree with that premise? and then be outline why you think, which I think you probably do, as do I, the Sandbelt Invitational is, or that model or the, the the concepts or the spirit of what it's doing is a better thing for golf in the long term than what we see with Live Golf. Yeah, well, it's not about the money, really, whereas Live Golf's all about the money. So it's, it's not about paying anyone to turn up. It's if you want to play, great. If you don't want to play, that's fine too. But, yeah, it's it's absolutely not about the money. But it also... Everyone who plays gets paid because pro golfers ought to get paid for putting in time and effort into what they do. So it's which, you know, and we would love nothing more than to be able to play for a million dollars, and hopefully we'll get the prize money up over the years. But not one person asked last year how much we we're playing for, and no one's asked this year how much we're playing for. But the money goes into their bank account on Monday morning or whatever it is, and so it's. But you know it's people playing golf on great courses because they want to play and because they're playing with their mates and, and the older guy and just playing because he wants to see who the young kids are. The only reason anyone's playing a live tournament is because they're getting paid a truckload of money to do it. Hmm. And, you know, it's... Um, you said something interesting there. This is probably on a little bit of a side note or a rabbit hole. You said something interesting there that professional golfers should be paid. So effectively, I think the biggest change that live is going to usher into the game, and we've already seen it effectively... It's going to become a contracted sport, which it never has been. Golf pros never started the year with any any guaranteed yeah. money. You had to, what do they call it, kill what you eat, whatever it was. Yeah. That's a really fundamental change, isn't it? We now see $500,000, which I think goes against the earnings if you're a PGA Tour member, to help with travel expenses and those kinds of things, this notion of guaranteed money. Is it a good thing, Clades? Will it fundamentally change golf? Well, it won't change it, but I think it's a good thing that Europe, I think, are Paying what, 120,000 euros, yeah, I think. Similar whatever kind of it idea, is. Similar idea. But yeah, you know, it's, I mean, you're, you know, everyone's playing pro ams and, and their caddies are wearing around BMW on the back of their advertising bib every week and they're getting paid nothing for that. So there's a lot of unpaid work on the, on, on the tour, professional golf tour. I always finished tied for 22nd last week and didn't get a dollar. So there's, the, the there's always been lots of unpaid work, and, and the best players will always argue that, well, you play better. But for a game that's awash with money, everyone who plays that $10 million tournament ought to get paid for their time and effort. And the caddies ought to get paid as an acknowledgement for wearing around an advertising bid for four days. They should get something for that. Cool. In, in a tournament where, you know, the, if, if there's a Ten million dollar purse on the PGA Tour. The budget, Scott knows what the budget is. Probably twenty million. There's not one hundred and forty four thousand dollars to pay the, every caddy a thousand dollars for walking around with an advertising billboard on his back for four days. Communist. He's a communist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you're a communist. Well, no, 
Um, that's a that's sound you hear is a can of worms because of course the caddies tried this on a couple of years ago, didn't they? Yeah, they, they did. About things like healthcare yeah. and whatnot, and they were beaten down in no uncertain terms. Well, yeah. Liv, Liv has made a huge effort with the caddies, with the caddies this really year. looking after the caddies this year. Yeah, 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 and it'll be interesting to see how that shapes out and keeps moving because they're definitely a group that feel under, mm-hmm. you know, under sort of looked at, not looked after properly. Um, and that's on probably the PGA a fair, that's And a that's, fair that's, case. that's, I think that's a fair case. I mean, there's tour events they show up and it's just a marquee and they go in there and that's where you've got to sit out rain delays or whatever. It's tricky though, isn't it? Because they're employed by the player, not by the tour. Correct. No yeah, sort correct. Of so there's that, that, but that's one of the things that perhaps pro golf will need to sort out as it becomes contracted and they, you know, whether they're employees of the tour or everything like that. And, um, but that's, yeah, they probably have a, a claim like Clayt says that they are advertising hoarding for four days, you know, there's a benefit for for someone there, and it's not the caddy. So, surely they can get something out of it mm. that you know looks after them, even if it's just money that goes to a caddy's lounge that they can go and sit and whatever. And yeah, that's pretty. I mean, there's a, there's a rudeness about that. There's almost a deliberate nastiness about that. That's yeah. very distasteful, isn't there? That that there's this is uh, this is something that always seemed a bizarre thing to me that caddies weren't allowed in the clubhouse in America and in Europe. No one ever blinked at the caddies. No. Of course, the caddies can go in the clubhouse. Yeah, and it was just. They were part of the. They were part of the tour, and of course they. Were, where else were they going to go? Yeah, but this, you know, there was this bizarre rule in America where caddies weren't allowed in the club. It's like that was some sort of underclass. Points, you know, which was points to the different cultures, though, doesn't it? The, the American golf culture is very different to the golf culture we have here in Australia and in lots of parts of Europe. I imagine, although there are no doubt parts of Europe where it's not dissimilar. It's a much more a game of exclusion in America. At a certain That's level yeah. than what it is here, yeah. or certainly yeah. in the UK. When when I went to the UK with BJ in '97, Brendan James, the editor at Golf Australia, I was staggered by the welcome at clubs that we'd heard of back in Australia. That you would expect to be very exclusionary. Were over the moon that someone from Australia would want to play their golf course. I'm not sure that's the case at a lot of those. Similar sort of level clubs in America. It's probably true of many clubs here in Australia too. I reckon that's changed over time, Clay. What do you reckon? You've been around the game longer than I. Is there more sort of exclusion or this notion of aspirational golf here than there used to be? I don't, by any stretch, think it's sort of like what we see in America. But uh, I don't think so. I think our clubs are pretty welcoming. I mean, they've all included and allowed pros to be members, which was a big step. I remember when I was, there were no pros as members. Uh, when I started playing, oh, when, when I turned pro, I was a member at Metro. I'd been a member there for five years. I turned pro, and they didn't have any idea what to do with me. Oh, but they, what? So they rescinded your membership? How did that work? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, really. So wow. yeah, so they um they let me play. It was it was funny timing. They they told me I could play. I'd be like every other pro and I could play four times a year. <laughs> and then um, there were some people who were in my size, some old, some old guys who were, who were brilliant, who did some work behind the scenes. And then, of course, I won the Vic Open. The headline in the paper was, Home Club Hero wins the Vic Open. <laughs> so, that, so they were kind of a bit stuck. But for – and I went, so I went to Europe for the next 15 years. So I, I was – I was in Melbourne for two months a year, so it didn't really matter. But they let me use the club as a member until 1993 when they introduced a category that allowed me to rejoin. The Clayton rule. So I rejoined the club. And now, you know, it's just taken for granted that Sue Owen, Blake Collier and Zach Murray and um, Todd Sennett are, are all members and no one treats them any differently from anyone else. And all the clubs have done that now except... Uh, Royal Melbourne, who allow members who were members who turned pro to, to remain as a member, right? But you know, I think you'd, I would have a hard time joining Royal Melbourne if I applied. But every, every other club's embraced pros, which was something that was forty years ago was unheard of yeah. and, and uh, unthinkable. So we, you know, we've graduated to that that sort of stage, which is a good thing. And I, you know, I think clubs are less snobby and more welcoming here than they. Probably were. I mean, when I was a, when I joined Metro, I was 18 years old. The next youngest guy in the pennant team was 43. Wow. <laughs> Good Lord. So, and most of them were over 50. So it wasn't exactly a junior friendly place. And most of the juniors were just sons of members who never played. So, you know, it's one club that's changed enormously over the years. Wow, that has changed. You can't imagine. <laughs> 
In fact, if you added up the ages of the pennant team at Metro, probably in this day age, you wouldn't get to 50. <laughs> you just, well, well, you, you would, well, you but, would, but yeah, but yeah. But I, I get your point. Makes the point, doesn't it? You can't uh, yeah, imagine yeah. anybody forty-three being on a yeah. on a pennant team in uh, in metropolitan Melbourne um, in this day and age. That article about which I mentioned that about uh, Live Golf and Greg Norman. What was your sort of take on that, Clates? I, have you got Clates' quote there? I, I had it here, but I, what did he say? <laughs> it was uh, you summed it up beautifully, um, Jimmy. Uh, Talks about tall poppy syndrome, but then no, Greg, it's people telling you you're a wanker. <laughs> the next line Austra- I thought was really good about Australians it. are great at saying, come on, mate, that's bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Because Greg's often. Well, and, and, and you know, it was a general conversation. It wasn't, I wasn't specifically calling Greg a wanker. What I was saying was, um, I, we were discussing the tall poppy syndrome, and Greg's always use that as that's a bad thing about Australia. You know, he said that, you know, they if you buy a Ferrari, they'll scrape the key down the side of the car. And my point to Jane was I actually think the tall poppy syndrome is a great thing about Australia because mm. it says, not specifically to Greg, to anyone who's carrying on like, a, well, mate, don't be a wanker. You know, and I said, we abhor pretentiousness. And, you know, I think we're good at not cutting people down but just saying, hey, mate, don't be a wanker. Yeah. Just because you're good uh, doesn't make you better. Yeah. And, and, and Australia's, you know, most – we were talking – I was talking with Liz Smiley at Warrigal after the round on – we were talking about sportsmen and Nick Kyrgios and uh, Pat Rafter and, you know, it's not hard to be a much-loved Australian sportsman. Just oh. be kind of nice and humble. Be like Pat Rafter or – Even Warney was – you know, for all Warney's foibles was – he was an incredibly loved Australian. He died. You saw how much people really yeah. loved him and uh, not so much admired things that some of the things he did, but they loved him. And in, in contrast to Greg, who I don't think people probably feel exactly the same way about. They respect him, but, you know, he's not someone who engenders a lot of love. But um, even Leighton Hewitt won the public over in the end. Yeah, yeah. But Pat Rafter and Ash Barty are, you know, two examples of, and Rod Laver from a part, from a previous generation, for examples, and, and Lou Hodo, I was lucky enough to meet once. I mean, you would never meet a more more humble, nicer person than Lou Hodo. He was incredible, and they're just decent people who are quiet and they, they understand what they've done might be important, but they don't treat anyone with disrespect and they treat everyone nicely. And you know, I think that the opening line of Jane's article about Greg was how he was abusing that photographer for, or, or the TV interviewer for wanting an interview. And then when the cameras came on, he was as nice as pie. And if you keep doing that, finally the word gets out that, you know, this guy's tricky to deal with. And Greg was always tricky to deal with because that was what Greg was like. But that's fine. I mean, Greg, you know, it's Greg's life. He can treat people the way he wants. But, you know, don't expect to be admired and loved for it. You don't get to you don't get to choose how people react to you, do you? I no. guess is the point. And so, if you want to no. take offence at that, you might want to look at. And uh, I think yourself. I think Cam Smith and Adam Scott are good examples of they conscientiously don't flaunt what they have, and both have got plenty. Yeah, you know, they've been very successful yeah. in the game, but you don't see them driving up in the cars that I'm sure they both have, or taking photos on jets and doing all that sort of stuff. It it's I've earned this, but I still want to be the same person. I want to be treated as the same person. You know, and. and- that, you know, you would never meet a nicer guy than Adam Scott. No. And what you – I mean, I first played with him when he was 19. It's never changed. What you see is what you get. He's always up for a chat. You know, he's a – He's a Genuinely terrific, nice I'll say a kid. He's not a kid anymore. But, <laughs> no, he's not, Clayton. You know, he's an, you know, he's been – he's done more than he's ever been asked – more mm. above and beyond what he's ever yeah. been asked to do for Australian golf. He's been incredible. Including – he comes back and he looks like – He's always enjoying it. Whereas Greg, the last 10 years of Greg's career, he looked like he hated being here. Yeah. He was just in a bad mood the whole time. He was grumpy. And it's like, well, I'm, you know, Greg, if you don't like playing here, don't come. You don't have to come. You know, it's great you do come, but if you hate it, then why are you doing it? Mm. Yet with Adam, you never get the sense that he, he, he does anything more than love being here. And he always puts on a show. He always plays well. He always does everything he's, that's asked of him. And... You know, you couldn't have a better better ambassador saw, for golf in the country. I saw one of my favourite things at the end of that Australian Open was as they're all waiting and finishing up and 
G.I. Shin came and asked Adam to have a photo with him. Oh, really? That's the level of yeah, popularity wow. of Adam, of G.I. Shin, who was, you know, yeah. and still could be the best player in the world. We don't know because she plays in Japan, but comes up and asks Adam Scott, can I get a photo with you? And Adam was equally as excited <laughs> to meet her. It was like one of those really cool moments mm. people don't see. For all his other achievements, I still think Adam Scott's greatest achievement was telling the funniest story I've ever heard about Clates, the year he won the Masters. He, he came to- Prime example, Clates. He came to the Australian Golf Media dinner on the Saturday night, which was a big deal then, to receive whatever award he'd received, just put it on the list of rules. But he turned up in the green jacket on the Saturday night of the tournament, where I think he was leading Rory, ended up losing the next day, which was heartbreaking, sort of on the 18th hole. But he told a story about the first time he played with Clates, who must have won an award just before he got up. That And you've told the story about how he, I think you were playing with Mark Allen and he got paired with you and you'd heard about this kid and he- We were, yeah. And he snap hooked yeah, it off uh, the first tee or something or- Mark Allen said, have you heard of this kid? I said, yeah, I've seen it. I saw his picture in a golf <laughs> magazine. I think he's a pretty good player. And he snap hooked it off the first tee. It was like he hooked it, started down the right trees and he finished 20 yards in the left trees. And he tried to chip it out and he hit a tree on his backswing and fumbled. And he, then he did chip it out. Then he hit an eight iron over the back of the green. And he got up and down for six, which was essentially a double bogey on that hole. It's a par five, but it's a it's a par four, really. Yeah, yeah. I remember walking to the next tee, saying to Mark, "Well, I guess he's not that good." <laughs> and he smashed it down the next hole in a sandwich to about four foot. Buried that, buried the third, buried the fourth, buried the fifth, <laughs> and buried the sixth. And I walk into the seventh tee. I said, "Shit, can you believe how good this kid?" <laughs> I mean, he was like. It was, yeah, and he he should have won that week. He he, he finished up. He three part. There was a rain delay. He came back out, and the seventh green was really steeply pitched and it's soft. And he hit a decent shot that sucked back down the green to about forty feet. And he three putted it. Then he just missed the last green. He chipped it to six foot. And he had a six foot at a tie, and he he missed it and missed the putt coming back and lost by two. But um, yeah, he was he was amazing. How yeah, it was clearly he was. Going to be a great player. Well, his recollection is somewhat different, Clay, although I'm sure he remembers all that, but the story oh, yeah, he yeah, told. Yeah, well, when I walked into the tree <laughs> on the fourth hole. <laughs> For those who don't know, Clay used to wear zinc on his top lift, like a really thick cream. It was bright white. And Adam talk, <laughs> talks about Clay's. If anyone who knows Clay's, profanity is not a stranger to him. He can, he can, he can swear with the best of him. He was apparently complaining about something, not looking where he was going, walked into a tree and was it your nose that started bleeding? No, my lip. I was yeah. straight my lip, my bottom lip. And it was a, so there was a mixture of blood and zinc and, and it was, white it was, zinc uh, and this pink mess on his face. And I'll never forget Adam just genuinely losing it, thinking back on it, laughing again at what, what an idiot you made of yeah. Who is this? Who is this Clay? Who, yeah. who is and, this um, idiot? Yeah. Then he hit this beautiful drive and this beautiful high three iron, <laughs> like a bomb three iron, just up into the right hand bunker. We even flipped it out to a foot and tapped it in for the fourth, fifth thirty in a row. Where was that? Fourth Clates, of course. Cranbourne. It was okay. a Cranbourne. Oh, there you go. The, oh. the, the, the site of the now famous <laughs> video encounter, which. Oh, yes. Well, we won't talk about How that. was that? Yeah, I mean, that was bizarre stuff, wasn't it? That was the very definition of viral, wasn't it? I think golfers losing their head. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's amazing how something like that, which can be filmed on someone's phone, literally within a day, had gone all around Around the world. world. Everyone, everyone in the world had seen that thing. It was just bizarre stuff. If if there was phones around, that would have happened when Clates walked into the tree. (laughs) Walked into the tree, we'd have had footage of it. We have got footage, of course, of Clates falling on his ball. We were were talking at the Australian Open about Clates hitting himself out of a bunker at. Was that at the Heath, Clates? I was at Kingston Heath yeah, yeah. at the Players' Championship, yeah. <laughs> you seem to be well-known and remembered for all the wrong reasons, Clayton. Yeah, I've done, I've done <laughs> lots of stupid things in my career, Rod, believe me. It's a real, real sort of pattern developing there, though nobody could question in fairness your contribution to the game. I was lucky enough, we're going to hear this early next year on the Thing About Golf podcast, I was lucky enough to sit down with Mary Thompson um, in Melbourne the week of the Australian Open for the Thing About Golf podcast. And mm. You'd know Mary Clates, what an extraordinarily dignified... Uh, yeah. woman she was, she is. We talked sort of about Peter and, I, Peter and I was thinking about Peter Thompson, thinking about pros who kind of give back and I'll probably put yourself and Jeff Ogilvy and Matt Goggin in this class. It's important, is it not, that our best players, those who are looked up to by lots of people, do give back to the game in some way. The things that you've done since your playing career ended and even while you were still playing with your, your writing and your now podcast that you do, you know, you appear on, anybody who's got a podcast, ask Clates to be on it, he'll turn up. There's no problem mm. with that. All of those kinds of things. Do we see enough of it? And why do you do that? 
Well, because I always enjoyed it. Because Peter Thompson always did it, didn't he? He always yeah. came back. And, and that was, you know, that was, he was kind of, I mean, I grew up reading what Peter wrote in the age, and I disagreed with almost everything he wrote. It's like I'm old enough to realise that how stupid I've been and what he wrote was actually everything was exact. I was completely wrong. I'm he was completely right on, on, almost, on almost every subject except probably the big ball. But, but you know, he was a great writer and, and he and I watched him turn up to state team practices and dinners that he had no right to go to because, you know, why is Peter Thompson here? Well, because he's, he wants to talk to the kids and he's just – someone asked him to come, so he turned up and – so if it's good enough for Peter Thompson to do all that stuff, then it's certainly good enough for me and and Jeff and the others who want to do that stuff. I mean, some guys don't have any interest in doing it and don't do it, but you know, I understood how important Peter Thompson had been in, and you know, in a tiny way. Well, in my life in golf and the way I thought about the game, but more importantly, in the life of you know the PGA of Australia, where he was the president forever and. You know, the age where he wrote great columns forever and for the ABC TV when he was a brilliant commentator, I thought, for, for decades. And, and obviously he was such a great player. And he turned up and he played for nothing. He never took a diamond appearance money. And he played and he played all the tournaments and he was, you know, people talk about, you know, the world tour makes me want to throw up. The world tour being Greg Norman's idea. When Peter was writing about it and walking the walk, 30 years before Greg ever thought about the World Tour. And, you know, single-handedly, he and Kel Nagel kept the tour in New Zealand going because they turned up every year and they played and they won the New Zealand Open, I don't know, 15 times between them. And, you know, they played all the Australian Opens and they played the PJs and they played the Vic Opens. They played everything. And, you know, if it wasn't for them, there wouldn't have been a tour for Greg to play on. And then Greg was obviously, you know, he was an incredible contributor just through his presence. He just turned up and he played. And the fact that he played was his contribution. It was amazing. You know, it's not like, don't get me wrong, you know, it's easy to be critical of Greg in some aspects, but, wow, it was amazing for this tour. But but there was, you know, you have the discussions on Twitter when someone said, well, it wasn't for Greg. It was, But look at the supporting cast, David Graham, Graham Marsh, Bob Shearer, Jack Newton, Stuart Ginn, Roger Davis, Ian Baker Finch, Wayne Grady, you know, Bruce Devlin, Bruce Crampton. There was a there was a hell of a supporting cast at, at that time who all contributed to making the tour what it was. He was just yeah, well, he was the most charismatic, obviously. I think, I think yeah. an important one to throw in as a doing stuff is Kari Webb oh, on the women's side. The 100%. stuff Kari does for young players coming up. Unheralded. The, yeah. the respect, but friend, the mix of respect and friendship that people like Hannah Green have for Kari is what you see with Clates and the, and the people he's involved with, which is such an amazing balance. And her, her role in the success of people like Hannah and Minji and stuff is unbelievable. Yeah. And she does it, she enjoys it so much. And, um, yeah, I mean, and then she shows up and comes out and plays that Australian Open and it meant a lot to her to try and, you know, make the cuts and, and get in there even though she doesn't barely play golf anymore. We throw the word legend around pretty freely, don't we, Clades? But I think Kari's one of the few that you can throw a legend at and it sticks. She really is yeah. a legend. As she and she's someone I think who's not that comfortable in the limelight. So no. She doesn't get as much credit as she could because people don't see what she does. No. No. No, exactly. And she, you know, she's... You know, if, if you try to get her on this podcast, you'd have a hard time getting her on. But she's actually been on place. She was, uh, yeah, yeah. She, but you know, she's um, she's not she's one done an amazing job. One of the reasons I asked that question, I'll come to you on this first, Jimmy, is, and, and then I'll get Clates' thoughts. I wonder whether there's been a change. We remember a couple of weeks ago there was that LPGA story about some players not turning up to the dinner at the final event of the year, et cetera, et cetera. So, leaving aside the specifics of that incident. One of the themes that developed over the next day or two from senior players and older players was talking about this generation of players who don't understand their responsibilities and have this sense of entitlement. You're probably more of that generation. Is that true or is it unfair to expect players to do stuff that players in the past used to do because one of the reasons they did it was so that the next generation shouldn't have to? Uh, that's for you too, Clades. Uh, I think I think it's it's fair to expect players to show up at functions and stuff when there's people paying for them, or you know if there's history involved. The WPJ had a 50 year anniversary on the Friday night of the Australian Open. Now it's not ideally timed because the players are trying to play a golf tournament and trying to win a golf tournament. But <clears throat> you know Hannah Green was there, Minji Lee was there, Steph Kiriakou was there, and and more are there at the event and they're doing the right thing now. 
I don't know if they feel like they have to, but they seemed happy enough to be there and to get out of there as early as they can to go and rest and play golf. But, um, look, you, there's certain things that come with it that playing professional golf that you, you're obligated to do. That's play in a pro-am with someone who's hopeless and give them a little lesson and give them a good experience because they're somehow contributing to the tournament, whether as a volunteer, media, sponsor, whatever. Um, it's important to play the game and do that thing and, you don't get that in other sports, but golf's unique in that way. So, um, I think it's important, but there's maybe, you know, if you play the LPJ Tour, there's probably a function every single week and whatever, and it's maybe a rotating cast of who shows up and who doesn't. But, I mean, that, yeah, communication with the players is important. That maybe when you get your tour card, there's, hey, we run these functions and we, we want you to show up because, it's good for the tour, but it could be good for you. You could meet someone who's going to back you for five years and, and that's going to be a great – that's where relationships are built. That's where you go to that WPGA function and you get to meet some of the founders of that tour and the people who've played a huge role in that tour that is, you know, it needs more support and it needs more growth and even get the chance to talk to people like, you know, Ian Baker Finch was there. So, he, you know, you might not get a chance to talk to Finchie otherwise. And um, I think it is important that players show up, but it's also, on, you know, it's understandable that they're not at everything for all the hours and everything like that because the people who say yes get asked every single time and, <laughs> and they get a reputation for saying yes. And before you know it, before you know it, you're out four nights a week and trying to win a golf tournament like that's, yeah. Broadly, Clayton, so have we got a generation of golfers who feel more entitled than we have in the past, or is it just easy to think that and suggest that? Probably in America, you know, I guess they're, they're pretty entitled because they're all pretty rich and they don't have to do much. And and the men, much less so than the women, don't need to. The women on the LPGA Tour need to support that too, otherwise it goes away. Mm. Yeah, you know, and I think until now, and I think yeah, that was a one-off. I don't know the facts. So I don't know what I kind of know what happened, but I don't know exactly what the facts were. But you know, my experience of you know people like So Young who just do whatever people ask her for, she's incredible. Too much, probably, and, probably too much the yeah, other way. In, in, probably, in and but the, but the women understand that if they don't support that tour, it'll go away. So so they're you know the good players play most weeks and. They're incredibly supportive of the sponsors and and the, and the tour because it's you know it's not something that sponsors are jumping up and down to invest in. Unlike the PGA Tour, where they've seemingly got an endless line of sponsors. You know, if they lose one, they've got another one lined up. So uh, the PGA Tour is a much different position. But women's golf, especially, needs the best players to to turn up and do those things that often they don't want to do. But that's often you know that they're the things they need to do. Yeah. That, that, I mean, Soyon is a wonderful example of mm. after the second round at Kingston Heath of the Australian Open, she managed to slip through without being asked for an interview by the media managers there, and I wanted to talk to her because she was one or two back of the lead and was right there. She slipped through, went through the players' lounge, and we couldn't get through that way. I sort of ran around trying to find her, eventually found her getting into a courtesy car, and I said, do you mind? No, not at all. And so we just... I sat there while she was waiting to go back to her hotel and relax and she just answered the questions I had and was more than happy to do it and that doesn't happen necessarily with some other players. Um, a lot of the local players are good, but- yeah. if Some you, of it's personality too, I suppose. Yeah. That's yeah. right. I mean, who can say no to me? I'm a fr very friendly guy. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, <laughs> she doesn't know any other way. No. Yeah. Well, that's right. T yeah. Tell us about the Vic Open a couple of years ago when she finished second, Clates, and the giving money to the bushfire. This is a staggering story. Oh, yeah. She gave um, – Didn't she come and ask you, though? No, not – well, she sort of did, but, you know, there was one of the big bushfires were on at Mallacoota and down through there, and she gave half her prize money from the Vic Open, which she lost in her playoff, and her prize money from the Australian Open, which was about – came to about seven or $80,000. She just gave it to the bushfire appeal. And then when she won the Korean Women's Open, which was 250000 she gave all of that to the COVID relief fund in that. Seoul. Yeah. So, yeah, she's just, you know, ridiculously Generous. good person. So, yeah, yeah you know, if, if everyone in golf was like Sayon, the game would be, <laughs> it would be a pretty amazing place. Yes, it, uh, it, it, uh, it certainly would. <clears throat> Pardon me. I'm just about done. You got anything else, Jimmy? We've got clothes. We don't often get clothes. 
We get him in private. We don't often get him publicly. Don't often get him with the recording on. With the microphone in his hand, which is good to see, by the way. So so the listeners appreciate it. What do you say to someone who says um, golf's got to forget about its traditions and cutting to 30 men on Sunday for the Australian Open is an important part of the future? Uh, I I say that's wrong. I don't think that's right for a national championship. I I think it's a real problem. But I don't think well, – I don't know if we're in the majority of the minority class. I'm guessing you don't think it's right? No, I think it's – you know, I think it's – the argument is uh, that that's what they do at the Vic Open. And I'm, my point would be, well, it's fine because – and this is not going to – you know, the Vic Open is not that no, important. It's not the Australian Open. It, is the no, it's not the, the Australian Open is too important, I think, to cut to 30 players on Sunday. And it was only that David Branson made a bogey from 20 yards off the ninth green on – Saturday night that Alejandro Canizares even played on Sunday and shot 64 and finished fourth and played his way into the British Open. Yep. So someone who thinks that coming to 30 players on Sunday is a good idea doesn't really understand how a professional tournament can play out on Sunday and how you can potentially cut someone out of a fourth-place finish. I think I think that argument about tradition is often a blanket defence of things of, oh, well, you just want everything to stay the same, which isn't true. I mean, I know Clates is not someone, a traditionalist in every single way, but things like the Australian Open have an important tradition. And I think that likening it to the Vic Open, if you're Golf Australia, who run both events, you open a can of worms because you played the Vic Open at the start of 2022, but you didn't play the Australian Open because we couldn't get big enough names to come and play the event. So, they're apparently not alike, but they are alike and yeah, I, I keep saying the Vic Open's built for purpose to keep that tournament alive and running and it's great. It's one of my favourite events to cover. But it's, it's the best golf tournament of the year to cover. Yeah, but it's, not, but it's not perfect, but no. no tournament is, but why we then need to shift and be leaders with this National Open, same with the Australian Amateur that I don't agree that we don't have match play in the Australian Amateur and the argument from the people who have been responsible for changing it is well, you can't keep every tradition and we're going to lead again and look at the USGA and, and whatever and they might follow us down the path. Well, I don't think that's true. But, you know, there's some things that should remain important and national opens are exceptionally important and using tennis as a model, it's a completely different game and they're not playing, you know, they don't have to cut the fields in the Australian Open tennis because of having both genders together in the same week. So, yeah, I think... um I think that argument's going to go on and on and on, and it'll be interesting to see the response from those in charge, whether they amend anything or whether they don't. Well, I mean, surely you look at the, arguably they lost four of the best six players on Saturday night. They lost Davis, Smith, Fox, and Leishman on Saturday night. I mean, how can that be a good thing for the tournament? So, it's a dangerous you know, path get, to go down that path and suggest specific players missed out there for it's a problem. But I, I do take your broader point. I, yeah. think it, I think it does make the point that I've always said is 30 is too thin for a national championship. And that's the point. It's a national championship. I have no problem with it at the Vic Open. But yeah. the Australian Open is an important national championship, not just in Australia, but we try to say every year globally it should be more important than it is. And you're not going to elevate it by having that system in place. So, so is the answer to do what tennis does and have the women's final on a separate day from the men's final? So the women play from Wednesday to Saturday and Look, the men play from Thursday to Sunday? It's or tricky. Vice, or vice versa. It's tricky, Clates, and I'm sure you're in the same position. You know, I've been critical of Live Golf for this notion of, you know, golf but louder as though that was innovation. That's not innovation. Shorts in golf are not innovation. Shotgun starts are not innovation. Three day events are not innovation. Mixed tournaments are a genuine innovation and a really, really good and important step for golf. So yeah, I agree. Is, I, think, I think it's great. So yeah, this is where it gets tricky because it is a genuine innovation. And the temptation is to then say naturally take it a step forward and say, so we should do it at, if not every tournament, we should do it at some of our most important tournaments. And intellectually, you can make that case and academically, you can make that case. But I don't actually think it works. So they've got a, there's a real problem with that. Can we innovate again and do something like what you're talking about? We had the two US Opens back to back at Pinehurst in 2014. They never did it again. I didn't, I didn't see a problem with it, but I thought there were terrific things came from that. 
I don't know what the answer is. I don't think cutting to 30 on Sunday is a positive for the sport or for the event. But I also don't think necessarily just saying baby out with the bathwater, there's no place for men's and women's national opens in some way combined is the way forward. There's something about it that makes sense, but the, the formula's got to be gotten right. And so there's probably a lot of sensitivity at Golf Australia about things that are being said. We spent a whole episode last week talking about this stuff. But it's not about bruising egos or any of those kinds of things. But you've got to get it right and make it work in all aspects. It's the national championship. And if you're going to have a national championship and you're going to say it's important, it's got to be treated like it's important. And I don't think that that cut to 30 in any way, shape or form did the did either of the two tournaments justice. The counter-argument would be anyone who's outside 30 doesn't have a chance to win, so they're getting paid while they're playing. Yeah. Which I don't is that agree true? with because I think that Winning is not the only thing that the last day is about. No, it's not. I mean, if the example of those bigger name players that you mentioned, Clates, is great in terms of crowd numbers. If they're going off at 6 a.m. on Sunday morning, people come watch them. But the example to me is the younger players who've made that first cut and missed that second cut who had a chance to climb up the field and put some serious money in their bank account and order of merit points. Like, that is... That your your pathway. So that's that's the guy that's the guy or, or girl who maybe had a more significant opportunity than Cam Smith having to finish in the you know fifteenth or whatever. So yeah, they're, they're the things. But they're not hope- performing seals, are they, Jimmy? They're people who are trying to build a livelihood, yeah, and you've right. got to give people some shot at doing that. Yeah, and so, hard yeah. luck caddies like Clates who don't get to caddy <laughs> on a Sunday and improve his you know show his worth to his young player. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's exactly. I don't know. Uh, there's probably a solution, Clades. I don't know what it is. My personal my th- thought right at the moment, and I think there are scheduling issues that are going to come up with the combined opens. It doesn't matter what you do. You've got forces globally yeah. in both men's and women's golf, which are going to work against a successful combined Australian Open. And I don't right. know if you can find a date that's going to fix that. It kind of needs the LPGA. The problem with the LPGA is you've got to pay their airfares and hotels out, which is $800,000 and a big chunk out of the budget. And you but can't have it in December. Yeah, you know, if I was an LPGA player, I'd rather pay my own hotel and airfare and pay for an extra $800,000 on the prize money. But, um, you know, it's a – it's a, and the, let's face it, the women's field needs an LPGA component. That's what that – that, that is what made the Vic Open so good. 100%. Was that it was a tremendous field. And the women's Open this year, the, the cut for the women's Open was not a problem because they didn't lose anyone. And the field, in fairness, was not. No, oh, they had issues about the field good. because of yeah, what happened. The field was the, pretty average. The tornado. To be, to, be, to be kind, it was pretty average. But the top thirty were terrific, and the top thirty all made the cut. Mm. The, the men's not so much. So, you know, it needs a better women's field. I mean, they they had a bit of bad luck as well. That LET LETQ school was That's on right. at the same time. LPJQ school got shifted because, because of the, of the hurricane tornado or, or tornado or whatever and whatever. But, but you know, even if they hadn't moved the LPJ school, those they still wouldn't have played. No, no. But I think no. I think the hopeful thing out of all of this is that the feedback from all the stakeholders in golf, which includes people other than just players and everything like that, is taken on board as they try and improve what is this product, because they're obviously committed to it. They're not going to throw out you know, throw it out completely. So you hope that they're listening. And Ash Buhai said about the dates, it doesn't work really. She won the tournament, like. Hopefully, they're taking on board and you can't please everyone. You can't make it perfect, but you can make it better and you can make it better the year after. And that's the concept, you know, Jeff's always talked about of player experience and everything like that. And you improve on it each year. Word travels around the world and you get more players and then things like co-sanctioning and stuff might come for you later. But a a one and done approach doesn't work like that. But also only listening to noise in the echo chamber doesn't help that either. Which includes us and all the complaints that we yeah. make. There's probably a whole bunch of people, because certainly nobody outside of golf would even know that there was a cut necessarily, Clates, let alone a second cut, let alone that it was 30 players, let alone that we think it's a problem. Yeah. So from the outside, perhaps, you're right, the counter-argument from the outside is, well, who cares? Why, why have you got so many people playing in the last round? But I, So to me, I, I don't think – I'm not a fan of it for the, the national champion. But it is going to be, as you say, it's not a one and done. So no. there needs to be some serious debriefing – I mean, how far could you realistically extend beyond 30, given that you've got two fields, Clates? I mean, could you have put many more people on the golf course Sunday, starting earlier? I mean, you introduce all sorts of issues, don't you? I mean, working. Well, I think, you know, David Branson told me he, he was, he played at 
one thirty on Saturday, and someone on the same score played at seven o'clock or seven thirty or something. So that's the U-shaped draw that yeah, the players that's hate. A weird kind of drawing. They really hate that. And yeah, that's I mean, beyond mine. They really should be separate tournaments, but it's kind of my feeling too. And I, I don't think you elevate either of them by bringing them together. I think you introduce a bunch of bombs. And I think the date, the cut on thirty, is one thing. And old blokes like us will grump about that, and some of the players. But the bigger problem they're going to have is scheduling mm. and who they can get to play in it. Because it doesn't matter if you go February, you can get a lot more of the LPGA players, but you're going to miss out most of the most well, of the top men. Well, who do you miss out on in February? You're not missing the live guys; they've got nowhere to play in February. Mm. That's true. Clay, Clay's with the hand grenade into the uh, into the trenches. Adam's going to come and play as long as they give him enough tickets. And if Cozy <laughs> Car turns up on Sunday, he'll come back and play. You, <laughs> you know, he might be. Everyone a, else is playing. He might be I a live player be, by then. Yeah. Guy Webb's going to play. Yeah. He doesn't care when he plays. I don't think. I don't know, but no. I don't see February as being that onerous a date. But, well, it's always been an issue for the PGA Tour guys, hasn't it? Because it's, but of course that's all changing now because of live and the way they've changed the schedule and the wraparound schedule has gone away. So, yeah, but, uh, but this is one of the things. If we're if we're starting to try and experiment with the Australian Open, let's move it to February. Let's, let's try it in February. Yeah. That's one that's been brought up so many times, and let's try it. Let's Probably lost in all of this criticism that, well, certainly I've made. I know others have made. I do give Golf Australia a big tick for for trying it. Yeah. Prior to the tournament, I was I was somewhat sceptical, and you know, I think that kind of got borne out. But at the same time, I simultaneously wanted them to have a go at it too, hmm. because I do think it sends an important message. Now, whether it can ultimately work, I don't know. But as you say, they're going to have to work. For, for coverage. I mean, if they're one of the things that you know, tournament organisers, Clates will know this as a tournament <laughs> as a director, tournament director is is making <laughs> sure that. You know, you're getting media coverage of your event, and you and they have measures of all that's of the success. When you bring those two tournaments together, and then you add the all abilities, you diminish your coverage because there's less of us who go and cover tournaments, particularly in Australia. So if you're one out or you're two out, and you're not going to maybe give one tournament as much as the other because of there's less big names in in the leaderboard or whatever it is. You you physically can't do that to deadlines, so you end up with Stories where it's just both tournaments in one story or, you know, the AAC doesn't get a mention or something like that. And that, that doesn't help your product of what you're trying to do. You want, you want a, a game story on the men's open, the women's open, the AAC, and you want a little bit of something else as well. And you struggle to do that if you're one or two people covering an event. And, you know, that's, I'd imagine that's thought of. There's people there with very smart media brains involved. So, you know, that that's important to these sort of events because you need to sort of and then even just the language around it, you know, people weren't sure if it was a mixed gender or concurrent or it was a dual gender or whatever. You know, if a little bit better explanation of that sort of stuff helps with coverage and criticisms and everything like that as well. That that's something that'll yeah, you're always gonna have a bit of that no matter oh, what. Of course you are. Have, yeah, you, of course you are. You, you can't sort of yeah, don't know, don't know. How many um, press releases have you signed, Clates, as the tournament director to send out? I don't recall seeing one yet. What do you mean? Oh, no, we got, one, we got one We got one on the oh, weekend. We just, <laughs> I was in the, yes, you're right. We yeah. did two. So one. Yes. One is one. the answer. One's <laughs> enough, isn't it? <laughs> well, well done. That's, a, of, that's amazing. Tournament director for two <laughs> tournaments <laughs> in a year and one press release. One press release, uh, which was, I'm sure was written by somebody else, was it, Clates? And you just signed no, it? I wrote, no, I actually wrote it. You did actually write it? Yeah, well done. Well, mate, we wish you all the best with the sample invitation. It'll be good. Jimmy, we'll see you down here. I'll be there yeah. for sure. No, it, Hopefully, it, it's um, we've moved out of the winter by then. Yeah, I, I, I might turn around and go back home if it's cold again. I can't <laughs> handle that. That's quite bizarre, wasn't it, down there? It was cold leading up to the Australian yeah, It was cold it was when you came straight from Brisbane where it was 35 yeah, degrees and there was yeah. 10 degrees or whatever. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks, Clates. Best of luck, mate. Looking right. forward to seeing it. Thanks, thanks, mate. Thanks for time. Right Appreciate that. Thanks, Clay. Jimmy, thank thanks, you. Jimmy. Episode of No Idea done something something last one for the year we'll see you all next year here on the good good golf podcast